Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, this is Paris Hilton. Trapped in Treatment is back, and this season we're taking on WASP, the worldwide association of specialty programs and schools. They held us in dog cages. They starved us. They beat us. It was trying to brand us. So we were going to become the McDonald's in treatment. Join my host as they unravel the story of the largest and most shocking organization in the history of the troubled teen industry. Listen to season two of Trapped in Treatment on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I used to have so many men. How this beguiling woman in her 50s... She looked like a million bucks. ...scams a bunch of famous athletes out of untold fortunes... Nearly $10 million was all gone. It's just unbelievable. Hide your money in your old rich men, because <laughs> she is on the prowl. Listen to Queen of the Con, Season 5, The Athlete Whisperer, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. School of Humans. Sanctum Unmasked is about a sex club and describes various sex acts. Please use discretion where and when you listen. <laughs> Damon Lawner is sitting by his pool, sipping a cocktail and thinking. There's a handful of young women swimming naked playfully splashing each other. A busty brunette jumps performatively on the giant trampoline in the yard. Damon's trying his best not to get too distracted, though, because he has a lot of work to do. Later this week, he will be hosting a special event for a man who paid him $50,000 to curate a custom sexual experience. So he's busy brainstorming, and with another sip of his drink, he comes up with this. The scene would begin with the man blindfolded and tied to a wooden beam in Damon's mansion. Then, three naked nymphs with antlers would remove his blindfold and release a kaleidoscope of live butterflies into the room. Think forest fantasy vibes. The nymphs untie the man and then, taking turns, hand-feed him lobster, chocolate, and vintage Dom Perignon. Then they have their way with him. Damon thought this was a pretty good idea, but he wanted to try it out for himself first. You know, for professional reasons. So he calls up three of his performers from the club and asks them if they want to come over to swim, Hello? hang out, and, you know, rehearse. Sure enough, the girls show up, and the four of them spend the afternoon doing research and development in the form of an orgy. At one point, Damon stacks the women on top of each other so he can fuck them from behind one after another, like going down a fuck ladder, until finally he feels satisfied that, yup, he was right. This is a great idea. This is a pretty normal day in Damon's life. 
I had so many girls at my house all the time. It was like a Playboy mansion kind of a setup. At that time, the idea of monogamy was insanity. Um, I had just gotten out of a 20-year monogamous relationship. So, like, I'm not going to get attached to anybody. I mean, at my parties, I would have sex with three or four or five different people. I was on fucking fire. It's 2016. Damon's now living by himself in the newly dubbed Sanctum Mansion. He's a bachelor now, and he's leaning in. I mean, my doorbell would ring, and, you know, some girl that I met at a party would come over with three of her girlfriends. You know, can we go swimming? You know, can we jump on the trampoline? And I was like, yeah, come on in, you know? And, like, I mean, it was just wildness. He was now fully embarking on a journey of sexual self-discovery. And it was something he felt he had to do alone. Or as alone as you can be if you're almost always literally inside someone else. But you get the idea. Welcome to Sanctum Unmasked. I'm your host, Carly Shortino. Breakups are rough, even when it's the right decision. They're sad, lonely, destabilizing. They force you to question everything you did wrong or could have done better. But something I feel like we don't hold enough space for is just how embarrassing breakups can be. Like, never have I ever acted more like a psycho than while going through a breakup. You're, like, crying at the deli counter. You fuck some idiot from the subway under the guise that it's empowering. You cut bangs. When we left you last episode, Damon and Melissa were going through a breakup of their own, and they were each experiencing their own very different versions of coping. Remember I got to the Sanctum Mansion, and I pulled Melissa aside for a talk. I had come to the conclusion that I wasn't monogamous. It was like a revelation for me at the time. It was like, there's nothing wrong with me. I'm not a bad person. I, I don't want to have sex with only one person for the rest of my life. I'm, I'm now declaring my non-monogamous status, and I'm going to enjoy myself and not feel guilty all the time because of these desires. Before the split, Damon and Melissa had been together for 20 years. She felt like she knew him pretty well, but even she was surprised by his rebrand. He was discovering himself as a hedonist. And he actually said that to me. He's like, I'm, you know, I don't want to pretend to be some upstanding guy anymore. When Damon moved out, Melissa and their two young daughters continued living together in the family's apartment. And the separation was hitting her understandably hard. I was crying in the fetal position on my bathroom floor every day, pulling it together, driving my kids to school. The second they would get out of the car and run into school, I would be a bawling mess. If a song came on the radio that was sad, a fuck, like Adele, hello. That CD that came out, 19, was like around that time, and I would just be a fucking bawling, crying, blubbering mess. Meanwhile, at the Sancta Mansion... I mean, I was like, you know, high on Molly and cocaine. This porn star that's like just fucking world famous for her blowjobs makes her way in with me to this room and we're by ourselves. And she just says, like, I want to suck your cock like it's never been sucked in your life. And I'm like, and I'm in the perfect state of mind to do it. So I just like relax into this experience and 
45, an hour late? I don't, I don't know how long this went on. I mean, I, my eyes are rolling back into my head. Like, I'm on another planet for a while. And uh, wow, I mean, that was, that was quite an orgasm. Until now, Damon felt like he'd been living in the closet, hiding his true horny self, feeling shame about his kinky, promiscuous desires. But he didn't want to hide anymore. He was running a famous sex club for fuck's sake, and he was just embracing the character, right? Did I mention that he converted his wine cellar into a BDSM dungeon? Just trying to paint a picture here. Anyways, the Sanctum Mansion was proving to be the perfect accommodation for Damon's shifting lifestyle, in some ways that were pretty surprising. Interestingly enough, I would share that space with my two young children on every other weekend. So the Sanctum Mansion became this like playground for grown-ups when, when I did Sanctum and this unbelievable playground for kids when I wasn't doing Sanctum. I would have sleepovers with, you know, I mean, 10, 12 kids. And I'd set up all of these like blow up mattresses and I had this huge wall where I'd, I'd project movies for them. And I had, you know, my staff that was doing my parties, I'd invite them in, they would cook, they would make popcorn. There would be like, you know, everything these kids could want. And then in the backyard, there was a, a, a big pool and a trampoline and they would go fucking crazy. Sure, he was a sex fiend, but most importantly, he was a dad. And he felt like these two parts of himself could exist in harmony. And the parents started to kind of know about what I was doing, you know, and, and I'm, I know that some of the parents were probably freaked out, but most of the parents were like, you're the most amazing dad. Like, how the fuck do you handle all these, ki-? you know, and I just loved it. Melissa was less enthusiastic about this. She was in the midst of a rebrand of her own. She'd become a personal trainer and she'd recently gotten sober. Damon, on the other hand, was basically partying for a living. And no matter how much she wanted to distance herself from him, there wasn't really much she could do about it. He was the father of her kids, and also, clearly, not the most discreet person in the world. We were growing in such different directions, and I was into health, wellness, fitness. And he was further and further into his role as the next Hugh Hefner. And so for me, I don't want to say it was about image, but I'm going to fucking say it. It was about image, and I just didn't want that image. If you remember, part of the reason they broke up was because Damon wanted to experiment sexually outside of their marriage, and Melissa didn't. Their priorities were shifting. But it's not like he didn't want to be with her or that he wasn't still attracted to her. It was just, at the club, he was seeing all these examples of how an open relationship could potentially work, and he thought maybe he and Melissa could try that. I started to watch all of these couples, and they sure looked happy. They really did, and you know, and they were free, and they were like fucking other people, and they had a commitment to each other. And I was like, wow, that's that's a really interesting way of doing things, and I wanted to try that. What Damon was essentially asking for is what the kids these days are calling ethical non-monogamy. So sleeping with people who aren't your partner has become very fashionable in recent years. Realistically, this has been happening since the dawn of time. It's just that people used to call it cheating, with some exceptions, like hippies and swingers, who called it free love. But today, younger generations, full of open-minded, sex-positive, and gender-fluid cool kids, have started a larger cultural conversation about how incorporating some space and novelty into your romantic relationships can actually be healthy and potentially keep things exciting and sexy for longer— 
You want to sleep with my BFF? Cool with me. Let's just share a Google Cal to make sure our schedules align. You've probably been privy to at least some of this. The famous sex writer and podcaster Dan Savage has aggressively brought the phrase monogamish into our lives. As he puts it, opening the door of your relationship just a crack keeps it from blowing off its hinges. I don't think I've been to an it girl apartment in years without seeing the book The Ethical Slut on the Shelf, aka the quintessential guide to non-monogamy. Also, I'm not sure if it's just me, but it seems like roughly 90% of TV characters are in open relationships. I'm exaggerating, but you know what I mean. Now, I get it. Non-monogamy does seem like a potentially more progressive, more realistic approach to long-term relationships. But just because something's trendy doesn't mean that it's easy. And just because something seems evolved doesn't mean that it won't drive you to the brink of mental collapse. At Sanctum, Damon had a front row seat to this sort of personal exploration. I mean, I have many people tell me that Sanctum saved their marriage by opening things up and staying together. They were able to, you know, work through whatever it was that was keeping them from kind of being horny for each other. And that Sanctum was this playground for them where they met other people. They were able to have these discussions. They were able to explore. But for all the people who said the club enlivened their relationship, Damon also saw some train wrecks. Specifically, I remember a a couple that was non-monogamous, but the man snuck off and had sex with someone in a bathroom and she found out about it. And she was like, what the fuck are you doing? You know, like, we're here together. Like, we're being honest with each other and you sneak off and hide it from me? That makes me feel like I, I can't trust you at all. And that obviously fucked up their relationship. So, I mean, this, this exploration is scary. It takes bravery. It takes a little bit of craziness, you know? Like, you have to be willing to, like, walk through some feelings that could be really hard. For a lot of people, going to a sex party is pretty intimidating. Even for non-monogamous couples, it feels like something you maybe work up to. But actually, these parties can sometimes be a good first step for couples who are looking to explore openness. This is according to sex researcher Dr. Jana Vrangalova. She's a human sexuality professor at NYU, and she also specializes in coaching couples into non-monogamy. Ooh, sex parties are such a fun little way to introduce some form of non-monogamy. There are actually quite a few circumstances that I would recommend a sex party for. And it starts with people who don't actually want to be non-monogamous, but who just want some level of spark, something that is sexual and can arouse some of that sense of novelty that often gets lost in relationships. Perhaps pause this to search Yelp for the highest rate of sex parties in your neighborhood. When couples want to explore, there's a lot of fear around what is introducing a third or a fourth person going to do to our relationship. Is that going to ruin what we have in some way? Is it going to lead to a lot of jealousy and conflict and all of that? So in those cases, I often recommend people to go and check out a sex party where they don't actually play with anybody else, where they just go, observe, watch other people play, maybe get naked themselves, maybe play with each other. So there is that voyeuristic component that can be very arousing and fun. There can be that exhibitionist component and still done in a way that doesn't actually invite that third 
into the relationship. So you remember Claudia, who worked as an atmosphere model at Sanctum? Well, she experienced exactly this. She met her husband back when she was working the parties, and she invited him to come along to Sanctum within the first couple months of dating. The first party I took my husband to, there were these girls totally naked, and they had these lampshades on their heads. And the lights were on, like in the, in the lamp. And one girl was holding like a jar full of pins, like little like lapels, and one said voyeur. And another girl was holding a different thing and said participant. And there were a lot of people that just watched. And I think they got excited and they took that energy home with them. Claudia describes her husband as a, quote, good Midwestern boy. So all this naked lamp women mansion orgy stuff was very new to him. Obviously, Claudia worked at Sanctum, so it was familiar to her. But she'd never been to a sex party as a couple. And she realized that it was a totally different experience. He was like, I've never even had a threesome before, like, let alone this kind of party. But it just made us open-minded. So I think for us, like, the first couple parties were like, huh, this is hot together. They realized that Sanctum sparked conversations that they wouldn't have had otherwise. And that was really exciting and made them feel connected. You know, your partner is like, okay, well, we saw this person getting whipped. Is that something you're into? And what if you're like, hell yeah. You know, and like that opens up a line of communication for you and your partner that you've never had before. And that leads to other lines of communication. And it just like keeps growing from there. There's nothing we can't talk about now regarding sex. There's nothing that's taboo. And I feel like that's where a lot of relationships fail is there's desires that are never discussed until they go explore these desires with either somebody else or behind their partner's back. She's right. The stuff you feel comfortable talking about, even with strangers, when someone in the background is being fucked over a railing, is definitely a step up from your casual dinner party combo. It completely shapes your relationship. I mean, how do you go to something so open-minded and then go home and just, like, turn that off? I don't think that's possible. I walked into it thinking it was going to be a job, and I had no idea it would literally flip my entire life upside down in a positive way. Basically, some people went to Sanctum because they were horny little goblins. For others, it was offering an avenue for exploration within their marriage. And apparently, that's worth thousands of dollars a ticket. But, as we'll see after the break, it's not always a walk in the park for everyone. Hey guys, this is Paris Hilton. Trapped in Treatment is back, and this season, we're taking on Wasp. They held us in dog cages. They starved us. They beat us. They burned us and subject us to really horrible, uh, cruel and unusual punishment. After my personal experience at Provo Canyon School, I was shocked to learn that a man named Robert Litchfield, a man who got his start at the school that I went to, would go on to create a multi-million dollar empire. He was trying to brand us. So we were going to become the McDonald's in treatment. The Worldwide Association of Specialty Programs and Schools. They prey on, you know, a parent's really natural and beautiful love for their children in a really, really, unfortunately, effective way. At this time in my life now, if someone presented this program to me, and not just because I've already experienced it, sham, scam, beware. Listen to season two of Trapped in Treatment on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up. <laughs> you couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. A story about money, power, and corruption. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. She's breathing right now? Yes, she's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. There's no way that that guy's a doctor. I'm Paul Pringle, and I'm an investigative reporter for the LA Times. This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California, and reaches all the way to the top of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. This is Fallen Angels, the story of California corruption. We're always going to have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Non-monogamy comes with many challenges. For one, there's a real stigma around it. Sure, it's having a hipster rebrand, but in most polite company, if you tell someone you're in an open relationship, they look at you like you're a slut, or an idiot, or some combination of the two. To be perhaps too frank, there's also an issue I've found with non-monogamy where some of the people in the lifestyle can be kind of, well, annoying. I did it in a way that was like, kind of righteous, you know? Like, this is who I am. You just need to understand that, that, you know, the way society has set things up is just all wrong and marriage is all wrong and monogamy is all wrong. There was no empathy. It was just like, everyone else is crazy and I'm sane. I'm enlightened, you know? I was drinking the Kool-Aid. Sometimes, identifying as non-monogamous can come with this holier-than-thou energy that's not so appealing. I've encountered many men with CNM in their hinge bios, standing for consensual non-monogamy, and all of them want to preach for four hours about how birds or squirrels or whatever are polyamorous. I'm like, yeah, dude, they also eat dirt, so let's move on. I'm being harsh, but this is a personal trigger of mine. Sorry. So exploring openness is going to involve navigating some of this type of personality. And then... Of course, there is the whole jealousy issue. Damon experienced this firsthand when he tried to open his relationship with Melissa. Remember, he had a threesome, she fucked her Equinox trainer, but it didn't bring them closer together. In fact, it did the opposite. Her having sex with another man was so devastating to me. As soon as she came home, I was fucked up in my mind. I was thinking about it, I was imagining it. There's jealousy, there's insecurity, there's anger, there's a feeling that you're, that the ground you're on is now like shaky. There's so many feelings that come up when your partner is with another person and I didn't know how to deal with them or handle them. I mean, I owned this thing and I was supposed to be the guy that knew all about this, but I didn't. I'd never delved into non-monogamous relationship. So I didn't know what the fuck I was doing. So I just like thought, oh wow, this looks easy. And it's not, it's not like that at all. Speaking as someone who has been in multiple open relationships, I'm intimately familiar with jealousy and its nauseating cocktail of suspicion and threat. I understand that jealousy is part of being human and a little bit can be considered healthy, but it's also embarrassing. 
It can feel desperate, clingy, and unattractive. And frankly, it just feels basic. I'm like, wait, I thought I was a progressive, free-loving, irreverent millennial. Shouldn't I be above jealousy? While non-monogamy can seem appealing intellectually or politically, in practice, it's like, oh, wait, my feelings don't care about politics. You know, you can step into it with this feeling like, okay, I'll fuck her. She can fuck him. We can do this. I feel good about this. This couple is really cool. And then, you know, it's happening and she's moaning a little bit louder than she does with you. Or maybe she's having multiple orgasms and the wife hasn't had an orgasm in 10 years, you know? And it's like, oh, oh man, like, why are they making such a great connection? What's going on here? So you open up that door, you never know what's going to happen. But for some freaks, a little bit of jealousy can actually be a good thing. It's well-known poly lore that a primary virtue of being open is that it prevents you from getting lazy or taking each other for granted. So basically, if you're open, your husband's less likely to get a beer gut. To that point, seeing your partner with another person at a sex party can be motivating. For some couples, something else happens where it's like, They do that, and then they go back home, and they fuck their brains out because they're like, did he fuck you better? You know, like, everyone is on their game because, man, this is scary territory now. You know, I'm going to fucking suck his cock. Like, that young little girl at the club, like, you know, I'm going to show him who can suck dick. And, like, all of a sudden, their sex life is on fire. Last year, in 2022, the award-winning journalist Rachel Krantz wrote a book called Open, an uncensored memoir of love, liberation, and non-monogamy. In it, she chronicles her first experience in a polyamorous relationship. And part of what she talks about is jealousy's potential benefits. Rachel met her boyfriend back in 2015, when she was 27. He was significantly older than her and was literally a professor of desire— like he studied the psychology of romantic desire and had been in multiple previous poly relationships. Before we even kissed, he told me he was non-monogamous and really framed it as like, this is about morally how I believe I want to be towards a partner. It's not so much about me being with other people. It's just I don't want to restrict people's freedom. And then came another piece of information. He revealed early on that he basically had a hot wife in kink where his fantasy was to see me with other men and brought up a sex party as a place where we could explore that. Hot wifing. This is basically a cousin to the more widely used term cuckolding, but minus the intended humiliation part. Basically, hot wifing is when you're turned on by watching your partner have sex with someone else, but where you're also involved, like in a threesome, for example. Interesting. He had been to this party in Brooklyn called Chemistry, and he was like, I think it would just be really interesting for you to see. I had one part of me was like, God, can I handle him being around all these other naked women and seeing the desire in his eyes for other women? But then another part of me was like, all right, I'm glad he's pushing me because going to a sex party, you know, it was on my bucket list ever since I was, you know, a preteen masturbating to eyes wide shut on HBO late at night. It was like, obviously you do that at some point. Like a fully evolved person goes to a sex party, whatever my idea was. I've actually been to that sex party. For context, chemistry is kind of the anti-sanctum in terms of vibe and aesthetic. Think less champagne and ritual sacrifice and more craft beer and stick and poke tattoos. Basically, everyone looks like they were born and raised at Burning Man. 
Rachel did pay to get in, but it was less than 100 bucks compared to Sanctum's six-figure memberships. It was Brooklyn. It really looked like any sort of hipster loft party, except that in certain corners, like, people were fucking. After one of the parties, we did get scabies, which was something I didn't even know to be afraid of. That scabies anecdote isn't relevant to the story, but I had to include it because it's truly an orgy worst nightmare. Anyway, back to the point. A man approached me who was actually, like, pretty good-looking. I ended up sleeping with him. He came super quickly. But what was fun was that during it, I felt all these people watching us. Even though I didn't think the sex was that great, Adam was like totally transformed into just this kind of beast feeling, like very primal energy of reclaiming me instead of me sleeping with whoever I wanted, being something that diminished my lovability or my value. It was something that only made Adam desire me more. Kind of reminds me of how Damon turned into a literal lion when he thought about Melissa fucking her personal trainer. Ah, no, am I, you know, like, no, you know, this is fucking, I'm fucking this. You go fuck something else. For a lot of people, it's uncomfortable to imagine their partner on a date, touching pinkies at the movies, followed by slow, diptyque candle sex. And that's what we all imagine, right? But part of the appeal of a sex party is that it's impersonal, like a networking event, but for threesomes. So to see your partner banging a relative stranger at a random party and then go home with you, for a lot of people, that's way easier to handle. Here's Dr. Jana again. The sex there is often much more in the casual side of things. We sometimes even call it sport fucking. (laughs) Not necessarily that it has to be that way, but there is more of a detachment. So those worries that people might have about, oh, this person falling in love or my partner developing feelings with these some of these people that we hang out with, that's reduced. Ultimately, it all goes back to personal preference. In terms of opening up, going to a sex party can actually be a way of testing the waters together. Damon came to this realization for himself, but after the fact. What I learned subsequently is that the the couples that do this successfully, they do it together. They share this experience with each other. They bring in someone, you know, maybe it's a girl or maybe it's a couple. When they're all together, there's lines drawn, you know, no intercourse, but oral's okay. And they dip their toe in the water and they try it out and they see what works. Experimenting together. How romantic. No, but seriously. And look, this kind of exploration obviously isn't for everybody, and that's okay. And also, it's not the easiest environment for sex just generally. Like, if you find it hard to come with an audience of one, try 100. But, as we'll see after the break, if you are the kind of person who wants sexual novelty, bottling it up probably isn't the answer. Hey guys, this is Paris Hilton. Trapped in Treatment is back, and this season we're taking on Wasp. They held us in dog cages. They starved us. They beat us. They burned us and subject us to really horrible, uh, cruel and unusual punishment. After my personal experience at Provo Canyon School, I was shocked to learn that a man named Robert Litchfield, a man who got his start at the school that I went to, would go on to create a multi-million dollar empire. He was trying to brand us. So we were going to become the McDonald's in treatment. 
the Worldwide Association of Specialty Programs and Schools. They prey on, you know, a parent's really natural and beautiful love for their children in a really, really, unfortunately, effective way. At this time in my life now, if someone presented this program to me, and not just because I've already experienced it, sham, scam, beware. Listen to season two of Trapped in Treatment on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up. <laughs> you couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. A story about money, power, and corruption. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing. Right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. There's no way that that guy's a doctor. I'm Paul Pringle, and I'm an investigative reporter for the LA Times. This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California, and reaches all the way to the top of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. This is Fallen Angels, the story of California corruption. We're always going to have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something I found really interesting from my conversation with Dr. Jana is that a lot of our personal desire to engage with any of this non-monogamy stuff, or to avoid it at all costs, is down to our brain chemistry. Literally, some of us have a set of genes that make sexual adventure much more appealing. Seeking novelty feels authentic, and you get a lot of reward from doing it. Whereas for other people with a different set of genes, it can feel like a traumatizing nightmare. But if you're someone who does want novelty and you suppress that desire, that can cause problems. If you have someone who is relatively high on that spectrum of need for sexual novelty seeking, and you pair that up with a long period of time where that need was completely suppressed, then when you open that door, it can be easy to just get lost in that world and really overdo it and, and do it in ways that are often not going to be healthy. You're not going to be doing it in a way that's ethical for everyone involved simply because there's so much going on. All of those things should be things that you think about as opposed to just letting it kind of take control over you. Hearing that, I can't help but think that's a pretty accurate description of Damon. He didn't get his chance at novelty in his 20-year relationship and non-monogamy wasn't an option. So when the gates of sexual freedom finally opened, he kind of went berserk. You know, the whole nymphs with handfuls of lobster and assembling a fuck ladder thing. By the way, that actually happened. Like, we didn't make that up. I'm creative, but not that creative. For Damon, after many months of surviving on a cocktail of sex, drugs, and money, he was starting to feel a little empty. He was coming to terms with just how seriously he was grieving the end of his marriage and how much he'd hurt the people around him. The journalist Mike Sager, who followed Damon around in 2016 for Esquire, had an inside look at all of this. 
It's no coincidence that his article was titled, Why the Founder of Sanctum Sex Club is So Damn Unhappy. Here's him describing Damon at the time. He's just got a creamy, loving center, good heart, either really big balls or just so narcissistic that he can't see the consequences of his own actions vis-a-vis the people in his life that he loves. Because therein lies, like, the reason this story is so fascinating, because he's in betwixt and in between. There's the devil and the angel, and he's, like, trying to, like, you know, be a little to the devil's side. And, and like, it's just never going to work. If anything, Damon is a victim of his own good intentions for himself and the world. By this time, Damon and Ambrose had become quite good friends and confidants. Remember, Ambrose was a longtime performer at Sanctum, who we met last episode, and he could see that Damon was struggling. At the time, I really looked up to him like an older brother type figure um, and really felt like we had like a siblinghood, if you will. And I could see that he was hurting and like was trying to fill a void and whatnot through all of these experiences. I also did damage control when he'd have dates. He would invite them to Sanctum, not tell them nearly enough at all about the party, and then just like throw them into the, like, the lion's den, if you will. And then while at the party, he's like caught an eye for another woman already and is like spending time with her. And then he's gonna invite her to the next party and do the exact same thing to her. A lot of them, resembled his ex-wife. He'd always talk about her also and, like, wanting her back and, like, how he fucked up and, like, stuff like that. Now, I personally know what it's like to distract yourself with the sex rampage. Sex can be transformative and connective and adventurous and intimate and a million other wonderful things. And it can also be compulsive and numbing. As my therapist says, sex is a great way to distract yourself from real life. But after a while, annoyingly, real life has a tendency to catch up with you. I was in such good shape. I was in the best shape of my life. I was meditating and all this shit, but I would be up in that room and I'd, I'd be working out like a motherfucker and then I would just like break down and start crying. And that song by Leonard Skinner, Simple Man, would come on and I would just like fucking start bawling my eyes out as I'm like curling, you know? I, I just, and it sounds, I don't know what it sounds like, I don't really care, but, but it just, it was such a, a, a hard time for me because I had everything I wanted and I was losing the most important things in my life. And I couldn't figure out how to have both. I created the kingdom and I had the key. And so I was like constantly in between these two worlds of like, fuck, I miss my wife. Like, what am I doing? This internal conflict, the need for safety and stability in a relationship while also wanting novelty and adventure, is a universal feeling. Most of us who have been in a long-term relationship can relate to this core idea, at least on some level. Can you really have the best of both worlds? Over these same months, Melissa had been on a different trajectory. Her grieving of the marriage was immediate and all-consuming, soundtracked by Adele, as you remember. But now she was beginning to move through it. And then she meets Billy. I ran into Billy, who was, he was actually our neighbor, who lived across the street from us when we had our house on Marmont. So I started to date him and started to fall in love with him. And 
He was such a natural, like he was a very secure, grounded person. He's like a low hum. And I needed that at that time. And he was so, so great. And so then I have Damon, like this spinning, crazy tornado, like doing sanctum and like causing so much pain in my life. But then I had this other beautiful person that was like giving me so much security and grounding and, you know, someone to listen to me that would understand. I call this the relationship pendulum swing. Like you break up with a neurotic type A overachiever and suddenly a stoned surfer bro seems surprisingly appealing. Been there. After the turbulence of her relationship with Damon, Melissa finally felt like she'd found the calm in the storm. But when Damon found out about Melissa's new relationship, unsurprisingly, it was not easy for him. When I spoke to Mike Sager, he told me his favorite parable, and I think it sums up Damon's position pretty well. There's a dog carrying a bone. He's walking across a bridge. And he looks down into the river and he sees, of course, his reflection, but to him, there's a bigger dog with a bigger bone. And he wants that bigger bone, so he barks. And then he loses everything. Next, on Sanctum Unmasked. If you're auctioning something off, that means that someone bought you, that someone paid for you. So now, what does that mean? Do they own you? It wasn't said outwardly, like, you're going to have a threesome with them, but you could tell that was, like, what was expected of you. There are a couple, like, things I saved from that time, and some of it is the blood of some of these huge celebrities. Sanctum Unmasked is a production of School of Humans and iHeart Podcasts, hosted and written by me, Carly Shortino. Edelise Perez is our lead producer and story editor. Amelia Brock is our senior producer. Sound design, mixing, and mastering by Chris Childs. Original music composed by Jesse Neiswanger. Fact-checking by Austin Thompson. Logo illustration by Linda McNeil. Bahid Frazier is our recording engineer. Recorded at iHeart Studios in New York City. Executive producers are Nick Stumpf, Jason English, Virginia Prescott, Brandon Barr, Elsie Crowley, and me, Carly Shortino. If you're enjoying the show, help us get the word out by leaving a rating in your favorite podcast app. You can keep up with Damon on Instagram. He's at Father Damon. Tune in next week. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I used to have so many men. How this beguiling woman in her 50s... She looked like a million bucks. ...scams a bunch of famous athletes out of untold fortunes... Nearly $10 million was all gone. It's just unbelievable. Hide your money in your old rich men, because <laughs> she is on the prowl. Listen to Queen of the Con, Season 5, The Athlete Whisperer, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, this is Paris Hilton. Trapped in Treatment is back, and this season we're taking on WASP, the worldwide association of specialty programs and schools. They held us in dog cages. They starved us. They beat us. 
was trying to brand us. We were going to become the McDonald's of kid treatment. Join my host as they unravel the story of the largest and most shocking organization in the history of the troubled teen industry. Listen to season two of Trapped in Treatment on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.